Welcome to the Listening Party podcast for April 10th. I'm your host, Rebecca Haas, the Director of Community Engagement for Pacific Opera. The Listening Party is a time when we get together with friends and play music. It's the time we tell each other stories that make music special to us. The Listening Party is a time to share the stories that make us who we are and the music that accompanied that chapter of our life. Welcome to a space that is devoted to weekly sharing of stories about music. Once you hear the podcast, then follow it up with the Listening Party playlist and hear the recordings of the artists and the music featured in each week's episode. There's a new episode every Friday, and you can listen at any time on demand. It's the third edition of the podcast. Last week I spoke to two colleagues who work with opera choruses, and they shared wonderful stories that really spoke to the power of ensemble singing. This week, it's Easter weekend. It's a very traditional time for family gatherings over food and faith for some, Easter egg hunts for many. It's a very difficult weekend for many to practice social distancing. But we must, and here on the podcast, I'm going to try to offer again a chance to connect over music and stories that celebrate the musical family, the chorus. This week, I gathered stories from a range of chorus members from across Canada. You will hear stories about Edmonton Opera, the Canadian Opera Company, and my own home company, Pacific Opera. The conversations I had this week were a real reminder for me about how deep the passion for singing is, making a joyful noise. Almost all the stories this week include the aha moment, when a storyteller was able to be near a world-class artist and suddenly that door was open that they too wanted to make music, they wanted to sing opera. The other common theme this week is family. And we will often think about our bloodlines as family. But every person I spoke to this week really talked about chorus as family, the experience of performing together and often in music that is so emotional and connecting as well. To collect these stories, I started out by putting a call out on Facebook. I was hoping to connect with some of my wonderful colleagues that I've sung with across the country from over my years as a professional singer. The first to respond was someone who knew exactly the story he wanted to tell, baritone Aaron Durand. Aaron and I sang professionally together with Vancouver Opera several years ago in a production of Albert Herring. Aaron is from Hundred Mile House. He told me there weren't many male singers where he grew up, and certainly no opera singers. But a local voice teacher from Victoria came to adjudicate a festival and inspired Aaron to travel to Victoria to further his studies. I asked Aaron to tell me how he found himself in the chorus at Pacific Opera all those years ago when his career started. I had just moved to Victoria from 100 Mile House, British Columbia, and had chosen uh, the Victoria Conservatory of Music as my first stop on the road to stardom (laughs) and uh, raised the funds, worked uh, the night, the graveyard shift at a grocery store for seven or eight months and saved up enough to fly down to Victoria. Uh, I had originally wanted to be a Broadway star, but I knew classical training was a good way to solidify my technique. What I wanted to do was go to the con, get two-year diploma, get my voice nailed down, 
as a 19 year old is like, oh yeah, it'll only take me two years to nail my voice down. Two years max. Then go to Studio 58, nail down my acting, and then very reluctantly take dance classes. I didn't really have a taste for opera. I didn't really like it. Um, I'd listened to it and I'd seen it before. I saw Carmen when I was 16 and, and really thought it was way too over the top and just a little too bombastic. I, I now nah, for a 16 year old, I was like, that's too much, no. And then, and then, and this is where the story begins, was first week at the conservatory, Robert Hollison was teaching music history. And just offhandedly after a class said, uh, hey, POV is looking for more people for the Onegin chorus. And do you want to sing? And I said, uh, what, what is it? And I, he's like, oh, it's, a, it's an opera by Tchaikovsky. I know who Tchaikovsky was, that's a start. And they'll pay you $500. And I said, oh my God, yes, please. Please, I'm desperate. I had spent all my money on tuition and all my money on housing and everything. So I was the like literal starving artist and had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no clue. I walk into the first rehearsal and they were rehearsing the Russian. It felt like trying to memorize Pi. And I was terrified. Stepping into that rehearsal, looking at the music and hearing the Russian and my heart is thumping and I'm sweating. I'm an introvert, so this was a very daunting thing for me, having come from a town of like 4,000 people and here I am in the big city for the first time ever. And then they say, all right, let's get to singing it. And Eric Olson opens his, opens his mouth and sings that opening line of the peasants chorus. And I just remember nearly dropping my binder in shock because I'd never heard anything like that ever. It's different when you're on the stage and you're in it. Like watching an opera is great, being in an opera, hearing that, that, that voice, that richness coupled with that, that ping right beside you blew my mind, absolutely floored me. And then the choir comes in and the harmonies are so thick and juicy. And I thought, okay, I need to pay more attention to this. I have been wrong for years. That chorus in Eugene Onegin, there's a lot of great music in that show and you had to dance i'm just saying yes i was forced to uh step up there's several different dances in that show there's that like the peasants chorus and the and the, and the peasant style dancing that uh was it jacques lemay did it um bloody brilliant and then act two had the waltzing and then act three had the polonaise and i remember being most scared for the polonaise was just something i was entirely unfamiliar with and what was it i think opening night betty allison who was supposed to lead the group of polonaisers she sprained her ankle the chorus got called in i think 45 minutes early to 
re-choreograph the whole scene. And Jacques Lemay calls me up and says, uh, you're going to be leading the Polonaise procession with Anna here, Anna Schill. And I, was, I literally had palpitations before I was on stage. I could feel my heart just like, like a hummingbird. And you hear that music. And oh my God, scariest moment of my life. And Anna's there, like looking at me, giving me the side eye, like, you gonna get this right, boy? Come on, boy. Ah, I'll never forget that. I managed to make it. It wasn't perfect, but I managed to make it. I managed to make it look half decent. Singing is part of this story, but one of the things that makes opera so great is that it puts together so many of the art forms, voice, orchestra, acting, and dance. Now, dance, as you might guess, isn't what most opera singers have much training in. And Aaron and I talked a lot about this, especially knowing that he had aspired to a Broadway career. And I confess that I will often say that for an opera singer, I'm a very good dancer, which does not make me a dancer. This production of Eugene Onegin that Aaron is speaking about was a show that I was in as well, playing the mother uh, character. And I shared with him that that was one of the gifts with my voice type is that I wasn't very often playing young women and therefore I almost never had to dance. I was usually the grandmother, the nun, the mother, so not a lot of dancing in my roles and I was relieved. Because I was old and I didn't have to dance. Because <laughs> I dancing would be the last yes. thing on my list of skills too. Uh, <laughs> I know, I love playing buffo people because they don't have to dance, it's great. Or dance well, at least. Or, or dance well. They can dance badly and get away with it. That's my favorite thing. As a baritone, like, you dance, you have to dance all the time. Yeah. As yes, a, you do. Like, you got, a Count has to dance in Act 3 of Figaro, and Don Giovanni is going to have to dance, and Danilo is going to have to dance. Dan, Danilo has to really dance. <laughs> yeah, hashtag baritone's got to dance. Apart from the dance, what made this so memorable to Aaron? Well... Spoiler alert, there is a great Canadian singer in this story that was the aha moment for Aaron. It holds a very special place being the very first opera I was ever in. Um, the biggest numbers for me are naturally the chorus numbers. Peasants chorus uh, always gets me. It, the, there's that wind up to the and that just, it thrills me every time. And then act two, the waltzing. It's just so festive. and It's the quintessential, just a good group of people having a good time. Just delightful. Uh, always warms my heart. And then of course, like Gremmins Aria, because he steals the show. When Gary Relier did it in that production, uh, I'd never heard anything like that before. Uh, I worshipped that man. Blew my mind. He gave me some of the best advice I think I've ever, like indirectly, he gave me some of the best advice I think I've ever received. Uh, we had just started learning Schubert lead. Uh, myself and one of my schoolmates, uh, Gabriel. And we were talking to him about this and we said, oh, Gary Relier, have you heard of a song called Der Doppelgänger? 
<laughs> right? <laughs> he goes, oh, yes, I've, I've heard it. It's one of my favorite songs. Do you know what? Oh, he said, what? What, Uncle Relier? Tell us a story. And he says, I am over 60 years old now. And I was playing that song just the other day. And I think I'm just now beginning to understand what it's about. And for somebody in their 60s to say that to a 19-year-old and his 18-year-old friend who are just aspiring to be somebody remotely like Gary was just, it was, re- was eye-opening to think that we could study something for that many years and still not scratch the surface of it was simultaneously daunting and incredibly exciting. The next story comes from a very good friend of mine that I met when I was a young artist. I started my career in the Canadian Opera Company as a member of their Young Artist Ensemble in 1987, and this is when I met Gaynor Jones. Gaynor was like many members of choruses across the world, a singer who might have had their own solo career, but chose some other things in life, and still found their musical outlet in a beautiful way, a musical home in a chorus. Hello there, I'm Gaynor Jones. And I was a longtime member of the Canadian Opera Company, sang as a soprano for most of my time there. And then when gravity took hold, I reinvented myself and had probably another decade as a mezzo. So there we go. I sang in the chorus. I did small roles. I did big understudies. I did school tours. I had a wonderful time. And I felt very lucky and privileged to be part of that company for so many years, decades long. I don't even remember how many. But here's one interesting tidbit. When I was in opera school, 1967, we did Louis Riel with the opera company. That was the very first production I ever did with them. And we took it to Expo. And then I had a great hiatus because I graduated, I got married, I had children, and then I went back to singing. So that's kind of a little crazy of my life as a singer. Gaynor had the privilege of standing on stage with one of the greatest singers of all time, Joan Sutherland. What was that like? Yes, well, when you think of grand opera choruses, the Guerra chorus from the Opera Norma comes to mind, but that's not the one I've chosen. I've chosen an aria that has a kind of a sotto voce underneath kind of chorus uh, enhancement or just adds a little bit of uh, atmosphere. And that's the Casta Diva. And the reason I've chosen Casta Diva is because it was my aha moment. When I was a teenager, I hadn't been exposed to opera at all. I was in a musical family, but it was not classically musical. I was born in Wales, and Wales is the land of song, and everybody loves to sing. There are lots of choirs and lots of opportunities. So when we came to Canada, my father was, uh, went to a Welsh United Church, Dewey Sant in Toronto, and there was lots of music there for me. I could sing to my heart's content. There was, they loved music. They sang in four parts in the congregation. So it was rich. I also had a wonderful school experience, but nothing to do with opera, and then one day, the person in the congregation who knew I loved to sing gave me a recording and it was Norma with Maria Callas and I went 
oh, okay. So I started to listen. I got to Castadeva pretty quickly and I couldn't believe it. I was blown away. There was this voice, this powerhouse of a voice with so many emotions and so many colors. I just couldn't believe that the human voice could do this. And I thought, okay, I love this. And I started to sing with Maria Callas. <laughs> I sat in Castadine until I wore grooves in the record, I'm sure. Very naive, of course. It would be never anything I would ever sing in my life. But I loved it. And that was what opened the door to offer for me. And then you fast forward a few decades and you find me in the Canadian Opera Company chorus and we were doing a production of Norma with another one of the great sopranos and that's Joan Sutherland. So I just, I was so excited to think that from my beginnings as a teenager and now I was going to actually be on stage with this La Stupenda as she was called and she was going to be singing my aria, Castadiva, and I was going to be in the chorus like her backup group, <laughs> singing along, giving a little bit of atmosphere. Joan Sutherland was a really wonderful person. She was warm and she was kind, and she'd sit in rehearsal hall with, with us, and we'd be waiting to go on and to do a scene, and she'd be knitting, and I'm sure she was knitting for a grandchild, so I really connect to that now in my life. <laughs> uh, she did, however, know what she wanted. She wasn't a pushover. And a couple of things she wanted, for example, when we did Norma, there was no prompt box. The Canadian Opera Company doesn't use a prompt box, but she required one. So there's always a space under the stage. And somehow they managed to build or create this little box where the prompter sits. And the prompter is a very, very accomplished musician. And we'd never had a prompter before, and it kind of threw us in the chorus because just before you'd sing, you'd get the words, like a nanosecond before. And we got used to it, but it was really weird at the beginning. So that was one thing she required. And I remember another production that she did with us, that was Anna Bolena. And she required her ladies-in-waiting. I think there were probably more, but there were two of us for sure who were more or less featured with her. And we had to be tall. So I was chosen to be a lady in waiting to Joan Solomon's Anna Bolena only because I'm tall. I think the other tall person was um, Martha Collins. And we had gorgeous, gorgeous gowns made for us, voluptuous velvet. It was amazing. But let's get back to Norma <laughs> because here I was standing on the stage. And the very first image that I remember was Joan Sutherland in profile silhouette and before she opened her mouth there was this tumultuous applause the audience went crazy and i knew that i was in the presence of somebody great and to sing even in this little chorus with her was like spine tingling that kind of amazing experience that you don't i don't get it all i mean i do get it but this was one of those that i totally remember so i feel like i've come full circle from that teenager whose eyes and heart and voice was opened up by hearing Maria Callas sing Castadiva. And then as an adult, having that chance to be on stage with Joan Sutherland and listen to her sing it. Hearing Gaynor's story about Full Circle and Joan Sutherland leads me to share with you one of my stories about Joan Sutherland. And I shared this with Gaynor as well when we were chatting. I grew up in a very small town of 800 people and I would sing in the local music festival every spring. One of the people in the town was from England originally, and he heard me sing 
probably something like blow the wind southerly at the local competition. And he came by my house and said to my mother, I think Rebecca has a voice that will turn into being an opera singer's voice. Now, I want you to know, I did grow up in a house where it was mostly the Beatles, Gordon Lightfoot, Dolly Parton, the Everly Brothers. I really had no idea what opera was. But this lovely man, Julian Tofts, brought over a stack of records for me to listen to so that I could hear an opera singer's voice and perhaps see that I resembled that. The albums were all recordings of Joan Sutherland. Now, his wife told my mother that he never lent those albums to anyone because they were so precious to him. I do remember they were all in the original, if you remember records, the vinyl sheet sort of envelope that protected the case. And of course, I let them sit on the stereo for weeks. My mother finally felt quite guilty and said, you really have to play these. We need to return these to Julian. And I can tell you that I played them. And unlike Gaynor, I felt nothing. I listened to them and thought it was very high, it was very loud, and I didn't see what that had to do with me. So I found it quite funny years later when I was in university, and I became a huge fan of Joan Sutherland, as many singers do, because her technique was so incredible and the voice was pure, her precision, what she could do, her facility. Um, I was very late coming to Joan Sutherland. <laughs> but I really appreciate knowing from Gaynor that she was a lovely woman. Here's Gaynor addressing how the AIDS epidemic and COVID-19 connect with her through a particular piece of music. Symphony of Songs comes into my mind um, for several reasons. And I think because it resonates with me very, very strongly these days, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and when we first did the Symphony of Songs, it was paired with Oedipus Rex, and it was Francois Gillard's brainchild to marry the two into a production that the COC mounted. And first in 1997, when the AIDS epidemic was, perhaps it wasn't at its height, but it was still a huge, um, it was a terrible thing. And, and so this production was dedicated to the victims of AIDS. So then I find myself today thinking about this pandemic, this COVID-19. And while the two are so completely different, I mean, they're different viruses. I don't know much about the background of that, but I do know that the feelings that came up with the AIDS epidemic and the feelings that are coming up now are, I think they're similar. There's the, you know, the alienation we feel. We can't be with people we love. The worry, um, the... Uh, isolation and the vulnerability. And I think that's maybe why I thought of the Symphony of Songs. I loved when we did it, it was, it was very powerful. And because we were invited to the Edinburgh Festival to remount it, that was an extra special event to be going to the festival with my colleagues and friends and to sing this wonderful music. We did the show in an old theater called the Edinburgh Playhouse. I think that's the name. And it was, we had a rickety staircase that would lead up to the dressing rooms. And they were pretty bare bones, but we didn't care. We were there, we were at the festival. We were going to sing this glorious music. We were privileged. And we were staged, if that's the word. We were put into like a trough that was the width of the stage. And we were in little, smallish groups, I think, and we sang from there. And while we sang, there was a scribe, and I can't honestly remember how many, maybe only one, 
But the scribe had a, a, a list of names and he knelt on the stage in front of us and he wrote names. And as he wrote, they were projected on a large, large screen above the stage and each name was somebody who had died from AIDS. So that was powerful, it was poignant and it just resonated so clearly with the music because the three psalms that were chosen for the symphony, the first is despairing and then the second is uh, like a, almost uh, a yearning that something good is going to happen and the third actually it happens it's joyful it's a celebration so again i'm thinking this we're somewhere on that continuum right now with this epidemic that we're facing so it just seemed to me that it was a really poignant and uh, subject that we are living today and it's just such beautiful music that we were in these little small groups so I don't know, there was just something very powerful about the whole experience, having the names on the, on the screen, having us sing this wonderful music and the, and the orchestra and everything. It was really a very powerful memory that stay, has stayed with me all this time. I, I just feel I was so privileged to be part of that production. A theme was emerging in my interviews, which is what it's like to be on stage, making the music, creating the moment, what it means for a chorus member. Carol Pudwell is a member of the Pacific Opera Chorus, and she's been with us since 2008. Her favorite show memory is Mary's Wedding, an opera that Pacific Opera commissioned. She was very moved while performing this story that is set in the time of World War I, and she seemed so connected to this particular struggle of loss from that time. And I began to wonder, what is so different from being on stage in the middle of the story as compared to the audience experience of sitting out front. Here's Carol. I think it's just having the experience of being the character, being a person in that time and having the interaction of the people on stage. It's quite different when you're sitting in an audience, you're removed from it in some way. But when you're there on stage, it's like you are living that moment in that time period with those people and getting that interaction and how people respond back to you because you know some people might think in the audience that everything is mapped out this is the way you're supposed to interact with each person but when you're actually given a character and um as a chorus member sometimes we get that freedom of who are you as a character it really makes a difference and how somebody responds to what you're emoting to them, it has a tremendous impact. It's quite different than being in an audience, I think. I'm so happy to have met Christina O'Dell in this virtual way, who I didn't know. So my name is Christina O'Dell. I sing with the Edmonton Opera Chorus and have done so for the past eight seasons. I also am the co-founder, co-producer of an indie opera company called Pop Goes the Opera. Um, during the day, I'm actually a pediatric speech-language pathologist. Her first story is about a show that I was actually in, South Pacific with Edmonton Opera. It starred Ted Berg, baritone, and Tracy Dahl Soprano, both well-known Canadian singers. I sang Bloody Mary in that show, 
and I can't hardly express to you what a gift it was to sing Bally High every night with a full orchestra. It was a really beautiful production. It's very memorable to me, and I was so delighted to discover that Christina had seen it. This is an aha story with a particular cast member that made a deep and lasting impression. I also want to say what a great reminder to all of us of how important it is to bring youth to the opera, the student dress rehearsals that are offered across Canada by all of our opera companies. You just never know who's going to open a door for a young person and change their lives. Here is Christina. I started in musical theatre. That was kind of my bread and butter growing up. I went to Vic, the performing arts school in Edmonton. And when I was in grade 11 was when South Pacific went up. And I remember going to see it and being absolutely stunned. Um, I, I think it was really interesting for me to see musical theatre, which I was familiar with, performed to such a high level. Uh, which you guys were able to accomplish. Um, and then the, the magical thing was, is that somebody organized a master class at the school. And because at the time I wasn't singing classical music, I, I wasn't allowed to sing in it, but I was allowed to go watch. And Tracy Dahl came and she led this master class at Vic. And I remember sitting in the back, I was in a row by myself and hearing her talk about the way that she approaches character development, the way she approaches the performance of her songs, it suddenly made me realize that opera was not that different from musical theater and it was something that I could aspire to. And I think that's where it was realizing that opera wasn't just park and bark. That was my impression kind of growing up. It was seeing this person that was speaking my language. because I, I came from theater. I came from that, like you dig into a character and you, you, that song comes from your soul. That was the tipping point for me in making me want to start studying classical music as a means to get where you guys were. I started kind of um, singing more classical rap. I auditioned many times, many, many times. And it took four or five years. They started to like recognize who I was. They're like, hey, you're back. And then it wasn't until the 2012 season that that was my first year in, in the chorus. But it really was all a result of seeing South Pacific and then having that experience of seeing Tracy Dahl working with other singers and realizing, oh, this is amazing. For me, opera chorus work boils down to two things for me. And interestingly, it's not necessarily because of the music that I love chorus. It's because of the, it's the sense of the sense of community and the massive theatricality that comes with being part of this massive group that's creating a world. And so Onyegin was one of those shows where you had three distinct characters and you kind of got progressively more opulent and fancy as the opera progressed. The song that I've chosen is Vot Tak Supriz from Act Two. It's kind of the, the opening of Act Two. And it was one of those openings where, and you only get this in opera, where the curtain goes up and the audience immediately starts to applaud and you're standing backstage going, they're applauding the set? Like, what is this? And so I remember, and it just gave this sense of electricity and, and we would all charge on at that point and immediately embody this massively um, effervescent party. And I remember having this moment where, because the stage, I had never performed on a raked stage before. That was completely new to me. And there was a ton of dance because it's Tchaikovsky. You can't not dance to Tchaikovsky. And 
So there was this massive raked stage and we charged on and immediately went into this big waltz sequence. And there was a corner downstage left where because of the rake, as we went through a turn, my feet weren't on the ground. I was completely suspended in the air at the mercy of my partner just holding on to me. And it, was, it just kind of fed this feeling of frenetic joy. And I think because I'd been so nervous in the first two operas, it wasn't till that point that I realized what, what being part of the chorus was. The chorus is building that sense of frenetic joy or immense sadness or you know whatever it happens to be in the show. And then that sets the scene for the audience as well. They can feel it. I will always have that moment burned in my mind in Onyegin, you know, as the orchestra just, it was, like, it was like the orchestra was blooming. It was just music everywhere and, and my feet weren't even on the ground. I wonder what it means that two people had such strong feelings about Eugene Onyegin. Motivated to listen to these tracks now on the Spotify playlist. However, stay with me. Christina has a favorite opera from her experience that she thinks might be your favorite too. But likely for very different reasons, she's going to give us a unique chorus vision of what it is to be on stage in this opera. Once again, here's Christina. Carmen is probably my favorite show that we've ever done. It's a through line for me in, in all the, I've done about 14, I think I've done 14 shows with Edmonton Opera and then we've done five through Pop Goes the Opera. So I've got a got a, a few shows under my belt now and my favorite ones are always the ones that bring on a real sense of community. And Carmen, each chorus member has a very distinct character in each of the four acts. And I loved that by that point, the chorus that we had had really come together and gelled and you could trust the people around you infinitely. So there was a chance in that space to play. So whether it was, you know, in the cigarette factory in act one, there was, there's a brilliant fight scene for the chorus in, in or for the women specifically in act one of Carmen, um, you know, into kind of like the seedy back alley feeling of act two into the mountains of act three. Like it just, ooh, it, it just, it, it, there's so much meat in there for an actor to work with. And I think that that's what makes shows like Carmen magical for audiences to watch too, because it's almost like somebody pulls up a curtain and you're just looking into a window in time. Being part of a show like that gets very exciting and very frenetic. I don't think I slept for like a month and a half because I was just so buzzed after rehearsals. But the interesting part is, is that the thing that I remember most about that show wasn't that, that it's not really the electricity of it. It was moments of calm on the stage. In opera chorus, we have a really unique opportunity and it's, it's quite rare. Um, it's not as, you know, we, we, we often get big, huge chorus pieces to sing, but on rarer occasions, we get the chance to be on stage not singing and it is the best seat in the house. So there's a particular moment in Carmen, it is act three and I was a boy just as a boy and it's when all of the chorus is all on stage and we're supposed to be kind of just chilling out we're like the the gang if that makes any sense um waiting in the mountains until it's time to move out and so the chorus waits on stage for a significant amount of time I would say probably 20 minutes which is a long time to sit there um and so we were out there we had I had a deck of cards and the, the boys actually actively taught me to, to play crazy eights 
there's this immense sense of safety. You're out there and it's, it's immensely predictable in a way. You know exactly what's going to happen. Um, you know the people around you, you trust them and suddenly you look out and you have all of these people, you know, 4,000 people looking at you. But they aren't looking at you. They're looking at the, the principal. So it's almost like you're a fly on the wall. And you think how many people in the world get to see what I'm seeing right now. And I was actually, I was quite hidden. I was kind of behind a platform in a little cave that was in the set. And I remember I could kind of peek over the platform and I could see all of those people just wrapped, spellbound almost. It, it's the card trio that happens at that point. And it's a brilliant piece of music. I, it's one of my favorite pieces of female music. And so I'm sitting there on one hand thinking how many people get to see what I see. And on the other hand thinking, how lucky am I that I get to experience this music while being in it? It's so safe, it's so energizing. It's, it's my favorite thing in the world, actually. That little space on stage where I'm just so happy and so safe. And then to have to kind of come out of that and remember, oh, okay, there's a piece of music that I have to engage in now. And you know, we'd all start, we'd pack up the cards and then we'd go to the guy distributing the, the fake guns and we'd get our gun. And, and what I find interesting about this piece of music is there is a big finale moment, but it's not quite the end. The principals leave, the chorus doesn't. And so I think that's the crux of what we do is the principals finish the big moment and then they, they leave to do their thing. The chorus is still on stage, still creating that community, creating that world. And I loved that particular moment in time because we would all pack up our stuff. And sometimes the gun guy would decide he wasn't giving me a gun that day. And then I would, you know, like if that, that little ending, which musically when you're listening to it is so inconsequential, was so much fun. It's very timely that Christina would have talked about Carmen. At Pacific Opera, we were to open our production of Carmen on April 16th, just a few days after Easter. It was widely anticipated by everyone in our community, in the arts and outside of the arts. People love this music so much. And of course, this is also true for our chorus. When I spoke to Carol Pudwell, who you heard from earlier, a member of our chorus, I asked her to reflect on what it feels like for her that our show was postponed due to COVID-19. Uh, it's heartbreaking. Um... I think it's heartbreaking for everybody, really. Um, the main thing I love is walking into the Bauman Center and feeling like I'm at home again. Because we've been, I've been in there for so many years. And getting to see everybody and getting to hug everybody, it, it's hard not to have that physical connection with your friends and people that you've known for years we all know so much about each other and being in the chorus is really being in a giant family. Our final story today is from Christina. As some of you might know, Edmonton Opera had their final dress rehearsal of Bernstein's Candide just hours before the government announced that they would be shutting down all venues where there were activities that gathered over 50 people. Christina very generously shares with us what it felt like to have created something with love and care and living with the fact that it will never be shared. We were pretty excited when we finally were brought in. We only had, oh boy, maybe four rehearsals on set. Like it was very minimal. Um, 
we were staged as if it was a Victorian operating theater, essentially. So all of the action took place kind of in the center. We were in these towers. They kind of reminded me of Quidditch towers. They were all around. So I was at the top of Quidditch Tower 5. Um, and once we actually got going, it, it's interesting because when, when I first thought, okay, we're just going to be sitting in risers on stage, my thought was we were going to be like a choir. It was anything but that. It was frenetic. We were up there the whole time, but we had tons of props that we were popping up at different times. And underneath each of these towers was a full-blown changing station with, and each tower had its own assistant stage manager. There was dressers back there. There was wig people back there. Like it was just, it was an all hands on deck show. I don't think I've ever seen a show that required that amount of precision and coordination between the entire team on stage and off. And it was phenomenal. It was like clockwork, right? So we were so ready and it was getting to that point. I have goosebumps as I'm talking right now. It was getting to that point where we thought, Kate, we are ready for an audience. Let's, let's give this a shot. So we got to the second dress rehearsal. So you got the orchestras in the pit. We had a bunch of school children who will probably never be the same again. I think they're scarred for life. So we, we did the show and it was just, you know, being on stage in those boxes, we could see the faces of all of those kids. We could see the ones that were, were hiding behind their hoodies during like the intimate scenes. We could see the teachers just going, oh no, what have I done? And we, we could see the laughter. Because Candide, Candide it gets a little dirty at times, right? Um, so, it, and it's a show, because it's a comedy, you need that audience there as the last piece of the puzzle. So we finally had that last piece and it was phenomenal. It was amazing. And so we, we kind of left the theater. And when you, you know, you leave everything in your dressing room, we had gummy candies all ready to go for the run. It was a, an obscene amount of gummy candies in the women's dressing room. That's the secret power source of all opera choruses. I'm going to add that in there. It's gummy candies. Um, so we were all set and we left kind of just feeling absolutely elated and excited for opening night. And then an hour or two after we left the theater, the government made the announcement that all large gatherings would have to be canceled. And so, and it was, then it was kind of this volley of, you know, we got the message from Edmonton Opera informing us that the production would have to be canceled. And, and then I started getting messages from people who had bought tickets, who were getting the messages that they, you know, shows can't. And so it's just all of a sudden, my phone just blew up and I was sitting in the parking lot at Safe on Foods and up to that point, I thought we were going to be okay. I thought we'd make it to opening night. I thought that maybe they would have to cancel like the last show. But I thought, ah, that's so far away. We'll worry about that when it comes. So like, I think all of us, that was the through line. We all thought we were going to be okay for at least opening night. We would at least get that chance to share this brilliant work with an audience, a real audience. It's like you're a freight train and you've worked so hard and you've gathered so much speed to be stopped dead absolutely dead. It, it was just this empty feeling because not only have we lost the productions, but we've lost the community. It's really hard to be just, we're just in each other's business when you're doing a show. You're just, you're in such close quarters. You're spending so much time with these people and to just in an instant be ripped away from that show and ripped away from those people. It was, it was very alarming. It was disconcerting. And I think the thing that helped me 
to not feel numb anymore was actually, it was about a week after, maybe it was less than a week. I feel like every day lasts a week right now. But Edmonton Opera put out a, a video of Make Our Garden Grow from our show. From, it was filmed over the course of the two dress rehearsals. And I was sitting, at that point, the classes had been canceled, but we were still at schools. And so I work in an elementary school, and so, but we were social distancing. So I was in the library by myself and I, I saw, I, a friend texted it to me, a fellow chorister texted it to me and I opened it and I just cried. I just sat there in the library at work and cried. And then I felt better. And I realized that like that, having that there was a bit, a bit of closure for me. And then it also gave me the ability to share it to share a little bit of this magic with the people that it was intended for, which was just the audiences. And what a message to share right now. I think that Make Our Garden Grow, I mean, if there's one song I could pick that we all need to listen to right now, it's Make Our Garden Grow. It's just take what you have, whatever it is, and make it grow. My thanks to Christina for that really powerful final message. And that's this week's podcast. I encourage you to listen to the playlist on Spotify for this episode, April 10th. If you're at home right now, listening to the podcast and thinking about the music that has impacted your life, why not share those stories with others? And let me give you a hand with that. You can email me at listeningparty at pacificopera.ca. Share your story. Later in the podcast series, I really hope to devote an entire episode and playlist to the stories of our patrons and opera fans across the country. If you're inspired, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Next week's podcast will feature stories and musical selections from the three leads from our postponed production of Carmen. I'll be speaking to the Carmen, the Don Jose, and the Toreador. This show would have opened on Thursday, April 16th, and you can hear the podcast on April 17th. It seemed fitting to hear from the artists that those of you in Victoria would have enjoyed in our production. We will meet here again next week. Until then, be safe, connect virtually with friends and family, listen to music, share stories at a safe distance, and have a very wonderful and happy Easter. I'm Rebecca Haas. Thanks for listening.